So I'm going to read this morning uh, from Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. I'm going to read from verses 5 to 38. And we read these famous words. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well on in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. 
How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. And this is God's word for us this morning. Two announcements of births that take place. Remarkably similar in many ways, but obviously some key differences that we'll look at as we go on through this passage. But before we get into all of that, let's get Christmassy this morning, because we can do so. What's your favorite Christmas song? Think about that for a moment. Are you the kind of person who uh, likes uh, a choir singing some of the old traditional Christmas carols? Perhaps you are. Maybe you're the kind of person who just likes a bit of Alla Jones at Christmas. Bit of a song from Alla Jones wafting down the corridor. Does, does Alla Jones waft? I'm not sure. Um, but a bit of Alla Jones perhaps you might like. Maybe, maybe... You're a Buble bestie, okay? Michael Buble. Even I have got his Christmas album. It seems like it's the only time I listen to him is at Christmas, but even I've got his Christmas album. Comes around every single year. I don't know. Uh, Slade, throwing things out there. Oh, I've got, yes, one or two. Yeah, okay, I'm surprised, okay. Uh, Bing Crosby, Mariah Carey. I don't know, I don't know. What's your Christmas song Uh, tipple, as they say. Well, in these coming weeks ahead, we are going to be looking at the songs of Christmas. Not Anna Jones, not Michael Bublé, I'm sorry, or even carols themselves, although we're going to be singing some of them in the weeks that are coming up. But the songs that surround the Christmas story in the Bible, because the Bible is full of songs, and and the Christmas story is no different particularly in Luke's gospel that we're going to be looking at. And there's a few of them, actually, that you come across that you may not have noticed along the way. We're going to have songs in the coming week from Mary, the mother of Jesus. She sings a song following the news, this news I've just read about, that she will become the mother to the Son of God. Zechariah, who we're also going to be introduced to this morning, sings when he's able to again, right? Because he can't talk for a lot of the time. But, but when he's able to again, he sings a declaration of praise and prophecy as he's filled with the Spirit of God after the announcement that his wife is also going to give birth to John the Baptist. The angels we're going to look at. Always good to have angels at Christmas, isn't it? The angels announcing a song to the shepherds of the arrival of the Son of God on Christmas morning. And later, uh, the kind of song that we, we, we find later in the Bible that Simeon sings, or at least he pronounces as Mary and Joseph take Jesus to be presented at the temple a little later on. All of them, all of them in Luke's gospel, which is why Luke in this series is going to be a great place for us to focus our thoughts and minds as to how do you respond to the coming of Jesus? 
How do you respond as we think about Jesus this year? You might be very, very familiar with him. You might have known him for many, many years. You might not be so familiar. You might have all sorts of questions about him. And what these songs will help us do, I hope, is to provoke our own thinking to look in wonder once again at the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and everything that he has done for us. And it's funny, isn't it? Because songs are a strange thing, aren't they? Music, in fact, is a strange thing. Music has this ability to touch us deeper than many other things, doesn't it? Songs and words and music touches our hearts in a way that many other things can't do. You know, it can make us laugh or cry. It can provoke uh, romance or even chaos. It can fill us with joy or it can cause us to feel sorrowful. And if you listen to most songs these days, particularly pop songs, but pretty, pretty much any song, um, you find that songs are always expressions of things that really do matter most to the person who's singing. They really do matter most. You know, there's, there's a reason why artists sing about um, love's won and love's lost, the best of times, tragic times, issues out in the world that matter, that get put into song and are sung out there and go out along, among the airwaves. They matter to the people. And to those listening on, we get an idea of what is on people's hearts when they sing a song. And you know, each of these songs that we're going to look at is going to be just like that this year. They're songs in response to an incredible, incredible, one-off, unique event that happened 2,000 years ago, that God came in human flesh to be the saviour of the whole world. And as he's spoken of, people sing. Do you know, it was so strange for us early this year, wasn't it, when we weren't singing? It was really, really odd not to be able to do that. Because there's something about God, something about who he is, which stirs something in us to want to do that, isn't there? Isn't he? There's something about him that causes us to want to sing, to declare our praises out to him. Well, that's what these people do in the Bible as, they, as the announcement of the births come about. And all of these things shown within the Christmas songs themselves are going to be teased out as we look through these coming weeks. And my job really this morning is to act as the MC of the series to introduce the singers uh, before we look at the songs themselves. Because what I love about these songs, as we're going to look into them in the coming weeks, is that they're all on a similar theme, but each is different. The people involved have a similar heart, but they're different too. That there's nuances in it. Each has slightly different things to say. But you can see why that they have what they have to say and why what they say matters to us as well. So this morning we're going to be introduced to two of those people. And the first person we get introduced to at the start of Luke's gospel is Zechariah himself, paving the way. Now, who is Zechariah? Well, to begin with, uh, he is the first person mentioned at the start of Luke's gospel beyond the introduction. But before we get to him, the introduction of Luke's gospel is really important for us. The opening few verses, which I didn't read out, 
Um, it's there that we learn the reason why Luke is writing his gospel in the first place. And it's always good to know why someone is writing the thing that they are. Uh, Luke was a companion of Paul's on, his, on, on, on uh, points of his missionary journeys. And he writes to provide what he describes as an accurate account of Jesus' life and the events surrounding it to a man called Theophilus. We don't know a lot about him. He's from a Greek background, and Luke writes in Greek, but we don't know much about why he's writing to him specifically. But clearly to a man who had questions, who wanted to be sure, who wanted to know more about Jesus. And so Luke, the writer, writes to him this account which he himself has looked into. We get told in verse 3 that he has carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Luke is not a a blind faith man. He's not a blind faith kind of a man. Luke is a doctor. He's someone who lives and works in the real world with real situations, with real people. He spent a career learning, analyzing, identifying, checking, and presenting so that people can receive the care they need. And here as followers of Jesus, he writes in a very similar way so that we can receive what we need. What we need to fill our hearts with and know about Jesus himself. And all that tells us really is that these things are vitally important for us. They're important for our own assurance, for us to know the truth of what we believe. But also they tell us and everyone, the whole world watching on, who this Jesus is why he came, and why he's so important, not just for us, but for the whole world at large. So let's look at this, this character, Zechariah, first of all. Who is he and what happens to him? Well, Zechariah, he is a, I suppose you could call him, a nobody in particular in that sense. And, and don't be shocked by that. I'm not, you know, being disrespectful to him. But in all accounts, he is simply a priest who has a family attachment to someone who is going to have a special announcement. He's a righteous man, and he and his wife are a righteous, uh, righteous people. He's an elderly priest, too doing his duties, living the ways of God as blamelessly as he can do, as we get told. In fact, if there is anything of note, that's the very thing we note at the start of his journey, just a few things about him. I mean, you can see the pains with which Luke goes to, to give the correct information. We get the time. This all happened during King Herod's reign. We get the place, it's Jerusalem or close to, where the temple is. We get whom he served with the priestly division of Abijah, and we're told who his wife is, Elizabeth, a descendant of Aaron. The story is set up to be one where the facts are all there in place. And what do we get told about him as the story is set up? Verse 6, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Do you know, I love it when the Bible sets things up like that. 
I like it when there's an issue involved and it's highlighted there, black and white in the text. Something's the matter here. Something's a problem. There's a few things being highlighted here. There's an issue that needs some kind of resolution here, you might think. And of course, what that means is God's about to do something incredible. He's going to do something in their lives that is going to change absolutely everything. And what do we learn? Well, with Zechariah, we learn that God is a God of the unexpected, for starters. That God is a God of great and miraculous power as well. And that God has got something specific in mind for this man, his wife, and their soon-to-be son entering the world that is going to change the course of history forever. First, the unexpected of God, which of course is never unexpected to God himself, because he knows. It's said around the time, and this is what I mean by him being uh, nobody in particular, He was just a priest. There were 18,000 priests at the time, they estimate. That sounds like a lot of priests, doesn't it? (laughs) But there there were 18,000 priests in service at the time uh, in Jerusalem, on and off. Each division served about a a week a year. That was it. Um, Twice a year, bar the major festivals where basically it was all hands on deck and everyone was there serving, okay? But usually it was just a, a week, a week at a time, twice a year. What you didn't get to do, though, as a priest, or it happened very, very, very rarely, was to be chosen out of that whole number to go into the temple itself, into the holy place of the temple, and to burn incense. Happened very, very rarely. It was a a once-in-a-lifetime thing that happened, and many priests never got to do it. And this year, this year that all of this takes place, and that, that Jesus arrives on the scene, Zechariah becomes not just that person who is nobody in particular. He becomes the one to which God would reveal what's about to have a next. And I don't know about you. I don't know if you've had those specific, significant moments in your life. I would say that this one is quite high up on the list, okay? That God, uh, through his angel, would speak. That you go into a temple having been chosen out of 18,000 priests, and this would be the day that an angel of the Lord would appear to you and start talking to you about what God was just about to do and what that would mean for you. I think it's rather special. I think we can all agree on that. And to paraphrase, what does the angel say? He says, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. We've got a God who hears our prayers. You will have a son, he will be filled with the Spirit, and he will pave the way for the coming of the King of kings and Lord of lords. (laughs) What? Hang on a second. Sorry, come, come, say that again? Come, come back to me on that? He's going to pave the way 
for the king of kings? We're going to have a son? I mean, we're in our old age. What? What are you saying, God? I mean, surprised much, wouldn't you be? Well, of course you would be, wouldn't you? You'd be absolutely shocked by the news. You'd ever take a moment to, 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 to take it all in. I mean, it's true to say, isn't it, that we have been here before in Bible history. This isn't the first time that this would happen. A child born to an elderly couple has happened before in the Bible. Abraham and Sarah, famously, old age, bore a child beyond the age of childbearing. But gosh, is it rare. Is it, gosh, is it rare in the Bible and nothing short of God's miraculous intervention. You'd go, as I would, and as Zachariah did, righteous though he is, you know, he, he knows who God is. He knows what, who he worships. But he says to him, I'm paraphrasing, hang on a second, what? I mean, did you check our age at our last birthday, God? Did you check that? We is not spring chickens. He didn't say that. That's what I imagine he said. How can I be sure? This is the question you would ask. How can I be sure that what you're saying is in any way going to come true? You would ask that question, wouldn't you? You surely would. You surely would. I'm sure we all would. I mean, take a step back for a second and think. Archangel of God telling you this. I mean, if, if you want a sign, if you want any kind of sign, the fact that you've got an angel standing in front of you, you'd have thought that might have um, given a little bit of an indication as to what might have happened next. But I think we would have all have had the question, wouldn't we? We're all human. Zacharias human. And he sees the, um, let's call them, practical difficulties involved in this, the likelihood of it happening. I mean, of course, that would have the potential to jump into your mind quicker than jumping up and down in delight. Well, he's elderly, maybe leaning on his stick and giving a little whoop or something. I don't know. But, you know, what would you do in that situation? This unique thing happens. He gets told of the most dramatic and wonderful of events. And everything's going to change from this point. Now, the angel does give him a sign. Tells him it's going to happen and gives him a sign. The sign's a bit of a strange one, really, if you think about it. He says to him, this is going to happen. I'm an archangel of God. I am who I am. I'm standing here on God's behalf. And I'm telling you this. But you're going to be silent now because you didn't believe. Because you had that seed of doubt, that human seed of doubt about all of this. You're going to be silent until his birth. Something I think that his, his wife may, may well very much enjoy, uh, potentially, in the meantime. But he will find quite difficult and have to get creative about what will he do? And how does he respond? Well, even if the initial point is that he didn't believe, that he was unsure about this just as we would be, one day he would have come to terms with the reality of it and he would sing a song of praise and worship because of what he would see God doing. 
And what about this something? What about the silence itself? Why, why that? And you think, well, there's a very simple way of thinking about it. This is the first time in 400 years that something's happened between the Old and New Testaments. 400 years where there has literally been silence. Nothing has been said. What's the sign that he is given? He's silent before the arrival of the Son. Before the arrival of the the boy who would proclaim the Savior, who would change everything. You can see the links being made here. He's there to pave the way, and this is what his son will do. And we can tell, can't we, that there's much more going on here than, than just about one family in a little place called Jerusalem over in the Middle East somewhere. Okay, He chooses a righteous couple. He tells them their miracle son will herald the Messiah's arrival, even if his, the son John is only going to be preparatory. He's only paving the way. It's verse 17. He says, The role of your son is going to be this, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What does that mean? What's he talking about there? Well, it means that the old ways are going and a new way is coming. The parents and fathers of previous times turning their hearts to the ways that their children would soon come to know. The coming of the Lord. Turning the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. The forsaking of former sins. Dealing with them rather than perpetuating them. Getting themselves ready before the king arrives. It's preparatory. John's message would be this. We've got to be ready for this king. So get yourselves ready for the king. It's a question for us to think on this Christmas. Are we ready for the king? Are we ready for his arrival? As we go through December, which we may have had many, many Decembers before, are we ready again this year that the King of Kings is coming and we remember him at this time of year? As we think on the majesty of his arrival and the manner in, in which he will one day again return, it really does provoke that question for us. It really does get us wondering about that point. You know, we have to ask ourselves, are we ready as we look at our lives? Are we ready as we look at each part? Are we ready for Jesus to look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You are prepared for my arrival. You are ready to see me. That's the real challenge of Zechariah's encounter. It's what John will essentially be saying just a little way down the track. We'll hear his song in response in a a couple of weeks' time. But he's telling us this morning as well, because God's Word speaks to us now. Are you ready? Am I ready? What do we need to get ready in our hearts before we see him, before we remember him again this year in the coming weeks? That's Zechariah. John will pave the way. Uh, What about Mary and Mary's response? Well, I guess we're perhaps a bit more familiar with Mary's part of the story. 
Uh, it's one of those great old Bible passages that we read and we hear at services this time of year. The angel Gabriel visiting uh, the Virgin Mary to tell her she'd be mother to a son who she was to call Jesus. He, she gets told herself, doesn't she, that he will be called the Son of the Most High God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will, ever, will never end. I mean, incredible news, okay, isn't it? Incredible news to be told. Incredible events that are going to take place. You'd sing if an angel told you that, I'm sure. You'd have quite a response to the news. Uh, there's, there's a website actually on the internet which has collected some of the children's answers to questions about the Bible, apparently from a, a Catholic elementary school. I don't know what the questions are, but children, when put questions about the Bible, gave some of the answers as follows. Uh, one child said, when Mary heard that she was the mother of Jesus, she sang the Magna Carta. That's the Magnificat, for anyone who didn't know. Um, she sang the Magna Carta. Another one said, St. John the blacksmith dumped water on his head. Kind of right, I suppose. Kind of got the gist of that. Uh, and then the last one, I'll read this for this morning anyway. Apparently one child overheard that Jesus enunciated the golden rule, which says to do one to others before they do one to you. You can see where they got it from, right? I think he said something more about loving your neighbor and turning the other cheek, actually. But anyway, um, you can see where they got these things from. But how would you respond? How would you respond to the news? Now, we're not told, are we, why Mary's question as she hears the news? Because she comes back with a question too, doesn't she? She asks how this is all going to be possible. We're not told why her question is not seen as doubting what Gabriel has said, as Zechariah's was. I mean, both are seemingly practical questions. Zechariah's is that he and his wife are old. How can they possibly bear a child? Mary's is that she is a virgin. How can she possibly bear a child? Both practically impossible. I listened in biology class, right? The difference, though, is that Zechariah specifically asks for a way he can be sure that this will happen. He wants a sign, some kind of way that he can know it's going to happen because he doubts. Mary, though, doesn't ask for a sign... That's the notable difference. She asks a question, but it's not a disbelieving question because she doesn't believe the angel. She's simply being practical. I mean, the amazing thing about this, of course, is that Mary is probably only at this point, but somewhere between the ages of about 13 and 16. She's very young. And in those days, of course, marriages did, did take place at that kind of an age. And, and to an older man like Joseph, as, as she is, but she is still very young herself. And yet what you notice in Mary is that Mary is the one with the believing heart. She's got a question, as we all would have. But compared to Zechariah, who doubted, She's the one who takes the angel at his word and believes. Interesting, isn't it, that a young lady, a young person, 
fresh-faced, rosy-cheeked, puts an older gentleman with a lifetime of service at the temple to shame. She's the one who gets it right. Out of the mouths of babes, we learn many things. And what's her response to all of this? Well, she says at the very end of the passage, doesn't she, which tells us that she's got this absolutely right. May your word to me be fulfilled. He's told her these incredible truths of what's about to happen, what the world will see take place, what they will observe and wonder as we still do 2,000 years later on. And it comes through the glory of a miracle. How will this happen, she says. The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Do you notice a few things about these, these encounters, these two separate encounters to two different people? Both have an angel speak to them. Both involve a miracle, albeit in different ways. Both are the work of his Holy Spirit in the lives of humanity. Both of them are told to be not afraid, which is useful when you've got an angel standing in front of you. Both get given a name for the child. Both are informed what their child will do. Both are told their son will be great in God's eyes. But of course, only one is going to give birth to the Messiah himself. The Holy One of God in human form to save his people from their sins. You know, the, the Bible amazes me. And often it does this. Here again, it's no different. God sets up these encounters with these two separate people to show that he is utterly consistent in the way that he works, at the same time as being utterly unique to the individual as well. He doesn't change his word doesn't change. He doesn't give us an updated version to cope with modern ideas and sensibilities. He is utterly, thoroughly consistent in the way he acts with these two people and with his people. And yet at the same time in Jesus Christ, we see someone who is utterly unique. Never to be repeated. No second act. There's a final flourish as the King of Kings where he's going to return in glory one day and we look forward to that day. The King of Kings will take his people to be his own forever, reigning forever, receiving glory forever, bringing salvation forever to those who trust in his name. The one whom no word he has given us will ever, ever fail because God is consistent in the way that he works. And yet in Jesus, he is utterly unique as he gives him to us in our lives too.
I love it that the angel tells Mary, no word from God will ever fail. And you know, no word from God ever does fail. It never does. He keeps his promises. Even in those moments where we're wondering what's going on, you know, we look at the world around us and it just all looks chaotic. Something happens to us in our own lives. We wonder what's happening. The testimony of Scripture, and for many Christians, they look back on events over the course of a life is this, that God does indeed keep his promises. And God will keep his promise to us that this Savior, this boy to be born, would give himself on the cross as he always intended for us in our place so that we can be forgiven and know the God of glory for ourselves. That is the awesome promise of Christmas. And there's going to be more still, of course. We could talk about Gabriel and the angels setting up the encounter. In in Luke 2, they, well, we don't know if Gabriel is with them, possibly he is, but further angels are going to appear, announcing more of the glory of Jesus' birth to some shepherds sitting on a hillside somewhere. These guys who were set apart, they, they were outcasts of society, smelly among the sheep. No one wanted to spend time with the shepherds, and yet they're the first ones to hear that Jesus has been born. Think of the significance of that act. Talk about Simeon and Anna at the temple a little while later as Mary and Joseph come to present him at the temple in accordance with Jewish tradition. It's another promise of God fulfilled. Simeon's waiting because he's been promised that he will see the Savior for himself. And this little boy arrives. Mary and Joseph bring him. And he declares that he's seen. His eyes have now seen the Savior of the world. Why? Because God keeps his promises. And we'll talk more about them in weeks to come. But to round off today, introducing the singers that are to come, we simply pause on the words of Mary, because they do challenge us as well. These are awesome words. These are awesome events. But they bring a challenge to us as well. She says those words in verse 38 quite simply, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. It's just a couple of lines. In fact, if you read it in the Bible, it's just a couple of lines. That's all it is. Not, not very much to it. And yet, of course, those words for us today are of, are of utmost significance because they challenge us as well. Do you know, I wonder what difference it would make this Christmas as we look forward to our Christmases this year. I wonder what difference it would make to our walk with him if we truly took God at his word and acted upon it. I know we do. We're always looking to apply the Bible to our lives. I know we do that. But if we could see him afresh this year, 
If we could, as we look at these songs and all that they declare about God and all that they say about Him, all that has come to pass and all that will come to pass through them, as we look at them and see the glory, the wonder, the holiness, the, the amazing presence and power of God, what would our lives look like if we saw that? What would our lives look like, look like if we took God at His word? And acted upon it and said, I'm your servant, Lord. May your word be to me fulfilled. Do you know, Zechariah proves that even the most blameless of people get things wrong. But the response we have to take on board as our own is that of Mary. And this picture of the songs of Christmas backs it all up. You know, she, she will sing in a little while. It proves she knows who this Lord is. She knows his awesome power. She rejoices, finds great joy in him for what he has done for her. That's her response. She recognizes what Jesus will do. The fact that she, she bears this son who is the savior of the world. He is still her king as well. She recognizes all of these things. That's awesome. It takes us away from this idea that Jesus is just a cute and cuddly baby in a manger. Yes, he is that. He's who we remember at Christmas time. The incarnation of God to earth is incredible. The gospel doesn't work without it. But this God that we're talking about, this Jesus who arrives, is awesomely powerful, like no other. Ways and purposes we don't even begin to grasp, except that in him we see the light of the world, the light of God, bringing salvation and hope to a world in desperate need. And you know, even Zachariah, he gets there. When he sings his song a little later, he gets there too. He's on a learning journey as well. He's learned from his, his errors. He knew who this child was to be. And all he can do as he declares his praises is sing and praise and prophesy of what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he will do. He's not just a cute and cuddly baby. He's the awesome God who came down to us. And you know, this morning as we share in communion together, I know this kind of takes us to the other end of Jesus' life. As we think about his death, his body broken and his blood shed. Do you know, I can't emphasize enough that communion is a remembrance meal of the King of Kings who gave himself for us. That's what we're doing we're not just thinking of a, a man who arrived on earth. We are thinking of the God of gods, the holy of holies, the one who came to us. Jesus, who gave us absolutely everything. And that was the purpose of his coming in the first place. And, and what this meal, what this, you know, these symbols within this meal mean to us is that he should mean everything to us at the same time. He should mean everything to us, the one who gave everything for us. We look at it. We look at the responses of what the angel says to both Zachariah and Mary, and it reminds us of who he is once again. He calls us to trust him. As the Advent candle we lit earlier, 
to do with faith. So we're to have faith in this Savior, to hold us firm, to keep us going, to give us eternity, so that we too can look forward with the hope of being in his presence and one day being with him in glory as well. That's who we come before as we share communion, as we open this December series building up to Christmas. You know, some of us need to remember that his word does not fail us, even in the tragedies of life. Some of us need to remember his awesomeness as we think about what he would challenge in our lives. And some of us simply need that reminder that he is the king who came for us. The awesome God who gave himself on our behalf. So that we can look ahead to these coming weeks with a fresh enthusiasm. With a newfound peace. Maybe a renewed joy. Maybe a heightened wonder at all he is and all he came to do.